Miss the show, no worries, on point and on the podcast. The NHL says it has no tolerance policies when it comes to sex abuse or bad behavior within the league, yet it is very clear it tolerates and rewards a lot of bad behavior. We talked to the lawyer for Kyle Beach, who's now going toe-to-toe with the Blackhawks. They have offered a full apology, but it's going to come down to a settlement and a question of what price can be put on what happened to this player. When it comes to our health care, we certainly don't get the services we pay for, but we don't even come close to competing with comparable countries when it comes to delivering universal health care. In fact, we come in dead last. So why aren't we using this pandemic as an opportunity to fix what we know is broken? And if you like your dairy products, prepare for some sticker shock as the price of milk and cheese is set to double in the coming months. So why is it that Canada, we protect the farmers, but there's very little protection for consumers? Let's get talking. This is On Point with Alex Pearson on Global News Radio. You can never make a victim whole. I would appreciate that the young victim's uh, parents, let alone the victim, are apoplectic about all of this. But the Youth Criminal Justice Act works in a very, very different way, and it's about the rest of the young man's life, not just the horrible incident. Yeah, when it comes to justice in this country, there is never justice for the actual victims. Alex Pearson with you on this Tuesday, November 2nd. Great to have you here along with us. And uh, for those wondering what we'll focus in on, I mean, this was one of those news days that I could talk about a whole bunch of things because it's been never ending today. And of course, we will dive into the Premier's minimum wage announcement, which may not be the best policy, but there is some very smart politics at play here. But I want to make sure to give attention to a couple of cases that share similarities and speak to institutional injustices. It speaks to our society's failure to protect those who should have been protected, and yet were failed in favor of protecting the predators. And of course, one of those cases is the ongoing NHL scandal involving Kyle Beach. This was uh, a young man utterly failed by a hockey institution that, of course, claims no tolerance, but clearly does accept it in order to protect their brand and bottom line. And at 7 o'clock, we're going to speak to Kyle Beach's lawyer, who has just uh, wrapped up meetings with the Blackhawk team officials. And while I do believe that Mr. Kyle Beach will eventually get justice... I also believe he will also lead to cultural change in the NHL. That really should have happened years ago when guys like Sheldon Kennedy and Theo Fleury came forward. But we'll talk with his lawyer about what uh, is going to be happening uh, moving forward because there have been some big developments today. But here in Toronto, we witnessed another injustice, another case involving hockey culture and an institution that put its reputation before the safety of a boy who will never get a big, huge NHL settlement, who will never be known as a hero for speaking out because he will forever be known as the boy who was raped with a broom, all for the entertainment of others. And then, of course, those images passed around on the Internet for others to laugh and further humiliate him. And unlike Mr. Beach, this young boy will not get all the praise he deserves because... In this country, our youth justice laws keep him tucked away, hidden in the shadows of his former life, right? While protecting those who really essentially took his life from him that day back in 2018 when they decided to terrorize terrorize him with a broomstick. 
And so today, sentencing was handed down where again we see this boy denied justice because we just aren't serious about punishing those who actually deserve to be punished. And if ever there was a case where punishment was warranted, where the punishment should fit the crime, it is without question these cases of the St. Mike's sex assaults. Yet here we are with those involved in the violent, degrading violation of this boy and not one of them, not one of them got more than a slap on the wrist. And it also includes the last of the boys who was convicted in June and sentenced today. And oh yes, as you've heard in the news, he got a whole whopping two years probation. The exact same non-penalty all the other boys got. No fine, no jail time, no social media ban. Just two years of behave yourselves, boys, and all will be forgiven, right? And of course, eventually forgotten. And the reasoning we hear, and I know there'll be lots of defense lawyers shaking their heads, I get it. But the reason you'll hear is, well, we wouldn't want to destroy their lives too, right? Well, no, but we do want to send a message. We absolutely want to send a message of deterrent to any other teen who might think that doing something like this is a good idea. Otherwise, what, what's a finger wag going to do? Nothing. When are we just going to admit that, you know, our justice system in this country is no longer about fighting or punishing crimes? It's actually a system now reduced to making sure that criminals have every reasonable chance of getting soft sentences that rarely, if ever, today actually fit the crime. And this process really has never been, for me anyway, about justice for the boy whose life has been destroyed. It's never been about protecting his identity because his degradation is still being passed around on the internet for entertainment. It's not about the fact that he has been or was failed by his school, which like the Blackhawks was more worried about protecting its reputation. And like Kyle Beach, we have another case here where we always say no tolerance. And yet we have a system in place designed to not only protect the establishment, but make sure that those who break the law get a second chance. And for justice to be done in this country, it has to be seen to be done. And in no way has justice been served in a case that had more than enough evidence to justify jail time. And it would have sent a real message that no tolerance actually means just that. That you can't go out and violate, degrade, and destroy someone's life because, well, it was fun. Because you wanted to make a video. Because you thought it was cool. And that didn't happen in the St. Mike's sex assault. And all the boys accused in this case, all of them will go on and live their lives. They will be protected by youth justice laws that are out of date and are far too long overdue to be changed. Their identities will never be known. They'll move on with their lives. And the young boy at the center of this case is going to be the one who has to really live with the suffering. And so when we say never again, I really hope it's never again. But we had a case here where no one's asking that the boys be destroyed. 
but a little tough love, a little hard knocks, would have gone a long, long way in sending a message so that we don't have to bring you yet another headline where this happens again, because guess what? Never again actually means it will happen again, because our justice system in this country is a joke. So we'll talk about that case, because it's one of those cases that really just makes you shake your head. We'll also be talking about the Premier making very big headlines, announcing that uh, he's going to boost minimum wage to 15 bucks as of January 1st. And of course, yes, it's a reversal of course for him. He canceled the wage hike uh, put in by Kathleen Wynne. And uh, now the pandemic apparently has changed things. And so his critics are going to argue, well, this is being done for votes. Well, duh, of course it is. Of course it is. Everything is about politics. But we'll talk about the effects of this on the small businesses, because ultimately they bear the costs of this. But one of the big takeaways for me is who was standing with Premier Ford today and the cost it could signal for uh, liberal fortunes, because both Jerry Dias and Smokey Thomas were heaping praise on Mr. Ford, signaling for the first time in decades that maybe the liberals no longer own the union vote. For the first time in dealing with three governments, we actually have a government that is listening and actually doing some very positive things for working people. I truly believe that it'll be up to the people of Ontario to decide on that, you know, come the next election. Uh, and uh, But the, the good things that, you know, uh, Minister McNaughton, Minister Bethlehem Falvey and Premier Ford are doing for working people uh, are not lost on me. And that is Smokey Thomas of Opsium. And in the last couple of weeks, the Ford government has made uh, several labor-friendly announcements, and it's pretty clear that this government has uh, been working to take the union vote and appeal to the working person. And with months to an election, both the NDP and Liberals should probably be very concerned that they haven't got union support all locked up. Not anymore, anyway. So what does it all mean? Um, Because where the... Premier will make uh, friends maybe in the union side world. He could lose a lot of support for the little guy, with the little guy, because small businesses now have to burden this new policy and uh, every other cost that they've got to deal with. So they're feeling pretty abandoned by a premier they thought would have their back. And um, and certainly the decision today about um, minimum wage won't ease the labor shortage. As I told Kyle on Saturday, I am sorry for what he has been through and thought he has been courageous, especially this past week. We discussed the path forward with him involved in efforts to confront abuse. We also offered to him and his family our resources for counseling. We could not be more sorry for the trauma that Kyle has had to endure. Well, sorry is a start, but nowhere near enough to address the pain and suffering of Keith Beach. And on Monday, that was the voice you're hearing of NHL Commissioner Gary Bettman, who was trying to mitigate the damage of a scandal that is not the first, and certainly I don't think it will be even the last, because what seems obvious, since Mr. Beach broke his silence, is that when it comes to leadership in hockey, it just doesn't exist. Because Mr. Beach isn't the first to break his silence on such abuses. I mean, Sheldon Kennedy and Theo Fleury rocked the hockey world when they revealed that they had been sexually violated by someone in the league. And everyone back then declared, you know, never again. And yet here we are again asking how this could happen again, yet in 2021. So again, it's the same old story. 
one that everyone knew about. No one did anything because ultimately those in charge seem more worried about protecting the league and in this case, the Chicago Blackhawks, instead of the safety of a player. And because of that, a predator was protected and would go on to destroy other lives. And so Mr. Bettman can say this behavior won't be tolerated. But it just doesn't seem to ring true. Susan Loggins is the owner of Susan E. Loggins and Associates. She's also the attorney for Mr. Kyle Beach. Good to have you. Thank you. My pleasure. I know that it has been a really busy day for you. You have been meeting with the team, um, trying to, to sort things out. The team itself has offered an apology and did so before you met with them today. Are they looking to settle this? Um, what are they looking for in order to make a very wrong somewhat right? Well, first of all, um, we have filed a lawsuit. So whether they like it or not, they're faced with either... Uh, they're going to have a jury trial where 12 members of everyday society in Chicago are going to hear the facts of the case and decide what they think the compensation should be. Or they're asking the judge to dismiss the case outright, saying that they don't believe that Kyle Beach has a valid case because the statute of limitations, the time to file has run. So, from our side of it, on one hand, they're saying they're sorry and that it's their responsibility. But on the other hand, they're saying, but by the way, we don't want to pay you because you didn't file in time. So even though we acknowledge that we were wrong and we didn't handle it right, we go home scot-free because you didn't file on time. Right. Um, you know, Gary Bettman on Monday seemed to be suggesting that the team had been punished enough. You know, the Blackhawks had paid a $2 million fine, but we have seen bigger fines paid uh, for teams that have broken the cap rules. Um, you know, so so he seemed to kind of try to suggest that, well, they've paid a price. I, I don't get the sense that that's the way that the general public is feeling. You know, the, his whole presentation was uh, lacked, in my mind, empathy, although he started out by saying that he felt sorry that it, that Kyle Beach had been through this. I never really heard him say, I'm sorry, we did not do more. I heard a lot of attempts to appear to be empathic to the people that have been injured in this, but no real action happening. The thing is that we know that, for example, Tampa Bay increased its value of its uh, franchise by about 16%, which uh, if you looked at the Blackhawks by winning the Stanley Cup, they're worth about a billion dollars. 16% is $160 million. No, I don't think $2 million meant anything to them. I think the whole objective with $2 million was to make the public think it was a lot of money. And, you know, Bettman's whole thing was, I wanted to give due process to Quinville. I wanted to give due process to uh, Shovel Day Off. I mean, it, I guess you have a one-man show there who makes $8 million a year to do that. Mm -hmm. So that's Kyle Beach has lost 10 years of playing while Mr. Bettman's made $80 million in that time. The other, the other thing is, uh, you know, the fact that the NHLPA, the, I guess the, the NHL Players Association, they're voting on whether there's going to be an outside investigation. I'm not sure why they have to vote. I would think that they would want to demand um, an outside investigation to make sure that there are actual systemic changes within, um, you know, the NHL. Because as I mentioned in my, in my setup to introducing you, this is not the first time that we've heard about this. I mean, we had the Maple Leaf, um, you know, sex abuse scandal here in Canada, and we have also had 
you know, big names like Sheldon Kennedy, like Theo Fleury, have come out and spoken uh, about how they were, um, you know, basically with predators uh, who violated them. And so now we've got Mr. Beach here in 2021 who uh, was also violated by a predator. And, and from the outside looking in, the league protected the predator who would go on then to violate yet another young um, student. And so you look back on the outside looking into the NHL and you think, okay, they seem to have wanted to protect more uh, the predator than the players. Yeah, it all boiled down to money. I mean, you know, they, they admitted that the quote-unquote chemistry of the team might be bothered if they did what they were supposed to do, which was investigate and then take Aldridge out of the picture. And, you know, some people might say, well, winning the Stanley Cup is a really big deal at that time because it had been so many years since they won it. But the fact Mm -hmm. of the matter is they don't value the actual lives of the human beings that are playing in this sport. We see that or we saw it with football and concussions. And it's interesting, once that came to the forefront, changes were able to be made that make a difference. So changes can be made in the hockey world, too. We just have to stop the good old boy network that values the franchises above the players. Mm-hmm. I mean, you have negotiated settlements and other high-profile cases like uh, R. Kelly. So you know you know what you're doing and you know what you're up against. But we have heard the term never again. It's always uh, when people get caught generally, uh, you know, it's never again. And, and then we see it happen again. Do you feel in your mind, Susan, that this is the start of a reckoning that will finally uh, change, um, you know, the, the, the culture um, in this particular uh, sports world? I do think that because after having tried cases for 40 plus years, I know the only real way to get through to companies is through the pocketbook. And so it really goes to the bottom line. And now they're on notice and I feel they have to change. You know, it's a question of human nature. And unfortunately, the nature of these humans wasn't too good. And I would think it's impossible to put a price on what was done uh, to Mr. Beach and what he has uh, suffered in silence for the last decade. That's not something you can really put a price on. So whatever settlement uh, or whatever is, I guess, worked out at the um, end of this, uh, you know, won't come near to what he has paid uh, personally. However, um, what ultimately does he want to happen here? Um, Does he want other people to be fired? Does he, what does, what would be a solution and a, and a and an outcome that he could live with look like? I think they, the whole thing he wants is to be believed and to stop the continued ruse of people saying they're sorry and that they believe, but then acting in a different way. So they've denied that he's been telling the truth for 11 years, including a year ago when I first brought this to their attention. They've denied it this entire year. And, you know, all they had to do was go talk to their managers. I mean, it's the same people that the independent investigator talked to. You You think anybody thinks that the Wirtz family, when they found out about this case a year ago, didn't go ask any of the five Mm -hmm. people in this meeting? So the conclusion is either they didn't investigate at all or the managers lied to them. So, you know, what Kyle wants is to be believed and to have a fair trial or a fair evaluation of his case without this ruse of pretending as though they believe him when they don't. 
And just before I let you go, Susan, um, you know, given the high profile of this case, um, you know, do you expect more people to come forward? I mean, is there more of a suit that can be put forward given that Mr. Uh, uh, that Kyle is not the only person. We have the student out of Michigan who ultimately would um, get uh, Mr. Aldrich put, uh, you know, get listed as a sex uh, offender. Um, but do you expect other people to come forward? I hope so. And yes, I do expect they, they will. But I think they're waiting to see how much hell uh, Kyle Beach and John Doe, too, have to go through to get there. But when all is said and done, because I believe that they'll be victorious in their cases, I think other people will be emboldened and have the strength and courage to come forward and make the world a better place. It is no question a David versus Goliath fight, but uh, it is also a headline that is not going away. So I think uh, we'll we'll wait and see what happens on this. Uh, Susan, I very much appreciate your time because I know that a lot of people are asking for it. So I, I appreciate you uh, talking with us. Thanks for doing it. Talk to you again soon. That is the lawyer, uh, Susan Loggins, uh, for Mr. Kyle Beach. And no question about it, this story is not going away anytime soon. And uh, we'll keep an eye on it for developments as they come in. But certainly, I think, ultimately, it's going to be the voice and uh, court of public opinion that will force uh, the change that is long overdue. All right, welcome back to the show. You know, before COVID, it was, I think, hard for a lot of Canadians to admit that our healthcare system is broken. The admission, of course, forced upon us because the pandemic thrust the universal problems of universal care right into the open. And that is, we just don't get the services we pay for, if at all. And while many will continue to defend universal healthcare as the best and fairest system of all healthcare delivery, why then do so many other similar countries deliver it with a lot more success? Uh, this is something the Fraser Institute dug into when they looked at the data of how we fare against other comparable countries in the care of universal uh, medicine and finds that we pay more than any other country. We have way fewer doctors, way fewer beds, way uh, less medical technologies being developed, and, of course, the longest wait time. So we spend all this money. We just aren't getting what we pay for. And so shouldn't we be fixing this now that we kind of have to? Bacchus Barua is Associate Director, Health Policy Studies over at the Fraser Institute. He is one of the authors of this study. Um, and so we know it's broken, um, Bacchus. The problem is no one ever wants to fix it. We just kind of keep throwing money at it. You're, you're absolutely right. You know, um, the way that we've looked at performance over here is by looking at value for money. Um, and I think quite often we're only focused on one or the other. And we need to understand that this is an equation. It's a, it's a question of how much are we spending and are we actually getting return for our healthcare dollars? And unfortunately, year after year that we've been doing this, this um, study, we found that that's not true. We're just not getting good value for our healthcare dollars. Routinely, we rank amongst the top spenders uh, amongst other countries with universal healthcare. So we're looking at 28 countries with universal health care in this report. And yes, there are many other countries with universal health care. And in 2019, the year in which we're looking at this data, which is before the pandemic, actually, um, Canada ranked as the second highest spender in terms of um, health care dollars um, as a percentage of GDP um, after adjusting for age differences amongst international countries. And even if we look at it in per capita terms, we're ranked eighth highest. So this is definitely not a spending problem. It's really a question mm -hmm. about why the spending is not translating into more doctors. Why is it not translating into more beds? Why, is, why do we still have the long wait times that we routinely see? And this study is really 
really about putting all of that into one report and saying, you know, here's all the indicators that we can get that we think are relevant for our healthcare system, and here's how we actually perform so that we can actually identify where we're falling through the cracks. Yeah, and when you look at the issue of healthcare, I mean, it always polls top of the list beside, uh, you know, cost of living issues. But people are concerned about health care. We have an aging generation, which uh, I think we're both part of, um, you know, that that are going to need more and more health care and a pandemic that has thrust this issue onto its head and exposed a lot of ugly truths that people have wanted to ignore, especially those who lead the country. You know, they just don't seem to want to fix what's broken. Um, but when you look through some of the data that you guys compiled, you know, to see that we are one of the highest spending countries when it comes to universal health care, we've got the worst wait times. Um, we have the fewest doctors. I mean, at what point do we make the necessary changes and have an honest conversation, which would include um, privatizing some of these services and getting people out of the system who can afford to pay for it on their own. And that's a very taboo subject in this country, but it shouldn't be. Yeah, I mean, you know, I don't have an answer for for the question of at what point we actually um, see change. Um, But what I can say is part of the path to that journey is doing what we're doing right now, and that's having an honest and open discussion about how our healthcare system is actually functioning. Um, reports like these really help us at least push aside, you know, the, the routine um, uh, knee-jerk reaction of most policymakers, which is, oh, we're doing poorly, let's pump more money into the mm-hmm. system. That's clearly not our problem. You know, despite spending the highest, we're ranked 26th for the number of doctors and, and 20, uh, 25th uh, for the number of hospital beds out of 28 countries. So this is telling us that despite this high spending, it hasn't translated into resources. And that resource question is very interesting and important because once we understand that, once we have that data in our hand, suddenly all those stories about, you know, uh, long wait times or not being able to have a family doctor or overflowing um, uh, emergency rooms suddenly start to make sense. If you are right at the bottom when it comes to the number of beds per capita, you're going to probably have overflowing emergency rooms as we routinely see in Canada not just because of the pandemic, the long wait times start to make sense. You know, um, in the data that we're looking at over here, when we're looking at the percentage of Canadians who waited less than four months for elective surgery, that number was 62% were able to wait less than four months for elective surgery. By contrast, in Germany, 99% of patients waited less than four months for elective surgery. In Switzerland, that's 94%. These are all countries with universal healthcare. They're all countries that spend comparable amounts, sometimes a little bit more like Switzerland, but sometimes a little bit less like Australia. And they're all doing right. universal healthcare differently and they're getting better results on a lot of these areas. And to to that question then, which countries that are, are similar to Canada's attitudes when it comes to healthcare, which countries doing it properly and the right way, getting better results and not, um, you know, losing the essence of universal care? You know, in this particular report, we don't have a we don't have an overall rank, um, and I think different countries may value different areas differently. So it's it's kind of difficult to answer that directly. But I will say that there's a group of countries that routinely outperform Canada in I would probably say the majority of these indicators, and that group includes countries like Australia, Germany, France, the Netherlands, Switzerland, and. All of these countries are spending about the same as Canada does. They all value universal health care in exactly the same way that Canada does. However, they don't have our stubborn adherence to, 
universal health care being equivalent to a government funded monopoly over the over the ownership and financing of services, which is what we're seeing in Canada. All of these countries understand that, okay, you know, instead of focusing on the public nature of the, of the system, focus on the patient. Use the best resources at your disposal, whether it's public or private, partner with them. Use them as a pressure mm-hmm. belt. Help the patient first. Introduce things like co-payments and cost sharing so that people are incentivized to use these scarce resources responsibly. In Canada, that's completely shut out because of the Canada Health Act. So we can't introduce anything like that. Or, well, provinces would incur financial penalties if they did that. Um, They fund their hospitals differently. They fund their hospitals according to activities so that hospitals are actually incentivized to treat the patient. To perform. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. So every time a patient comes in, the hospital actually gets paid. Whereas in Canada, we have a global budgeting system as a result of this um, government funding nature where every time a patient comes in, they're a cost to that hospital. They eat, eat into the budget. And, you know, I have to be clear, it's not like any one of these things are going to magically fix Canada's healthcare system. It's probably some combination of them. And Canada will have to figure out what combination works best for Canadians. But unfortunately, right now, we're in a situation where we're just not really even allowed to have those conversations because of the way the Canada Health Act is set up between the financing for the federal government and the provinces. So we're just not allowed to experiment. We're not allowed to try. We're not allowed to have, you know, kind of pilot programs that look that that emulate these other countries. Um, And so I think hoping for something better is going to be very, very difficult without that change. Yeah, we're also lacking leadership to start the conversation because it is like the third rail to, um, you know, provincial and federal politicians. So I'll take my hat off to the person that actually starts bringing this up because it is in our best interests to get this thing fixed and fixed properly. Bacchus, always a pleasure to have you on. I appreciate you uh, bringing us into this conversation. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on the show. Thank you. That is uh, Bangas Barua, who is with, uh, does the health policy study analysis with the Fraser Institute. All right. Great to have you here on this Tuesday for a busy day. And um, if things like cheese and all those creamy things are your thing, then you're going to want to pay attention because the cost, as we know, of everything is going up on just about everything. And of course, that includes the cost of all things dairy. And I'm not talking a small amount. The Canadian Dairy Commission is recommending an 8.4% hike in farm gate milk prices. Dairy farmers, of course, have been hit by the pandemic, but like everything else, they have to deal with increased production costs in dairy farming, uh, transporting, packaging, feeding livestock. So if cheese, milk, butter, all those things are what you want in the next coming months, you better be warned because we could be paying double what we pay now, which is absolutely shocking. John Keogh, founding and managing principal with Chantella, also professor of practice at McGill University, uh, just happens to be a supply chain expert, which I never knew John would come in so handy when dealing with all these supply chain issues, as well as increased inflation and foodflation. How are you? Good to have you. Hi, Alex. Thanks for having me. This is one of those issues that is very, very confusing to the average person because we get into all sorts of supply management subsidies and things like farm gate pricing. What the hell is farm gate pricing? Can you just explain it of how the Canadian Dairy Commission recommends 8.4% on farm gate milk prices? How, how does that work? Yeah, well, if, if you look at the commission itself, I mean, it's, it's, it is, if I can use the term, it is rather incestuous because the three members of the commission include two dairy farmers and the former CEO 
of the milk marketing board. So I leave that for what it is. But the farm gate price is uh, the price that the farmer will get before they sell to uh, to retail. Now we have to remember that that 8.4% is what the, the farmer will get. But when they sell to wholesale and processors, the prices will more than likely increase again because they have the same increased costs. And then the retailers are faced with a decision. And in many cases, retailers use milk in, in particular and some dairy as a loss leader to get consumers into the store. I remember even you know, 40 years ago, we had a retail store in Ireland. Uh, in fact, we had several of them. And uh, you know, low-cost milk or, or no-profit milk or even a loss on the milk was mm-hmm. quite common. Right. And, and and that speaks to the supply management and the fact that we allow farmers to kind of limit the supply of what consumers are expected to buy. And then the farmers are made whole by the government. And that in itself, John, as you know, has been blamed for inflating food prices um, because these these guaranteed supports are built into the price of the goods like the milk, the butter, any dairy we buy in the store, uh, rather than what the American system does, which is uh, pays or supports their their farmers through taxes. And so it doesn't hit you quite as much. So the system as it is now, um, many will argue is just stacked against the consumer. That's right. In fact, it's considered a repressive policy because it imposes higher costs on the low to to middle income families, the ones that can least uh, afford it. But if you, if you go back in history and look at where supply management came from, in the 1920s, it was initiated in, in Australia uh, to protect the farmers' incomes against economic swings and, and lower prices. But Australia has successfully phased it out. And it, it's seen as a needless, costly system with artificially high prices. And it's seen as an indirect tax on consumers. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, it, it has already been condemned by the WTO, the World Trade Organization and OECD. And essentially, Alex, it's called a legal price fixing cartel. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we've seen that. Where did we see that with all the bread fixing and all the rest of that? But, you know, dairy farmers, um, I don't know if they've got you know, special treatment. I mean, I think other farmers look at it and say, like, why do they get made whole? We're having the same struggles in different areas. You know, we have to pay extra costs for drying our crops or, you know, there's there seems to be uh, different favors for different farmers. And I don't want to pick on any which one of them because, uh, you know, I don't envy, envy farmers today at all because they do have a lot going against them and trying to get food to market. But ultimately, John, it is the consumer right now that is paying the price. And at these prices that we're paying, be it milk, butter, cheese, and these are, uh, you know, considered essential items, like if you've got young children, are, are simply becoming unaffordable on top of all the other things that we're seeing increased prices on, of fruits and vegetables, uh, where food is just becoming absolutely unaffordable. Yeah, that, that's right. And, you know, the CDC is a crown corporation, but it's only taken into consideration just one lens of the economic landscape. And that's the the dairy farmers. But as you as you mentioned quite rightly, uh, who's looking out for the consumers? Who's looking out for the restaurants and, and you know food service more broadly? And there's businesses that are highly dependent on 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 uh, milk and dairy. And we've already seen, I think, it was about sixteen thousand uh, Canadian restaurants that have closed uh, during COVID. So we have some significant problems. And you know this the supply management uh, it benefits about ten thousand farmers who already have above uh, average wealth and uh, and income. So it's unfortunate. You know, I'm sympathetic to what's going on. We know that the costs are there for feed, energy, labor, and transportation. 
but uh, nobody has yet has yet come out and justified why Canada has the highest milk prices in the world for years. It's nothing yeah. to do with COVID. We, this is this has been a, a you know decades old problem. Yeah, and we can't even blame it on the supply chains. But I mean, this is one of those issues, as you well know, that no politician wants to touch. I mean, uh, Andrew Scheer won his leadership by striking a deal with uh, the dairy farmers and making sure he had their vote. So it's very political. No politician wants to touch it for fear of irritating, um, you know, the dairy farmer in that part of the vote. But essentially, someone's got to take leadership to make sure that we have a system in place that works as much for the consumer as it does for those who are putting food on our plate. Um, I understand carbon taxes and all that stuff. I totally get why farmers are feeling, um, you know, and also having to deal with a very unpredictable mother nature. They have a lot of challenges against them, but there's gotta be someone who's willing to take leadership and create a system that does eventually, inevitably protect the consumer. What would that look like? Would it look like going more the American route where it's built into the taxes? Yeah, well, essentially what uh, what WTO has said is that, you know, Canada, because of supply management and also our exports, I think in 2019, we exported about 430 million of uh, milk and dairy. So essentially what WTO is saying is this is unfair. What What is actually happening through supply management is we're providing an export subsidy where the, the dairy farmers or processors can actually sell overseas at a lower cost uh, and Canadian consumers are sponsoring that. So okay. the Australian example, New Zealand example has been, you know, shown for the last 10, 15 years as something that Canada has followed. And Professor Sylvain Charlebois has also uh, penned an article on how Canada can make that transition from supply management. And he, you know, he, he's the first person to say that this is going to take time and there will be pain. But ultimately, it's a fairer system to move to a market model. Uh, because right now, even though the, the farm gate prices are going up by, you know, 8, 8.4% or whatever, and the butter prices are going up, the actual price that consumers will pay is much, much higher as the mm-hmm. wholesalers and processors add to that. And then the key thing is, what will retailers do? Will they absorb some of that sure. cost? Yeah, yeah but they've, they've got their own uh, price uh, problems with margins. And then of course, you've got to factor on the fuel of shipping all these things to the grocers. It's just a never ending circle right now of um, driving up prices on everything. So we know cheese is going up by 15%. So what should Canadians then in your mind be expecting to pay when it comes to the price of milk uh, in the next couple of months? Well, it's definitely going to go up by uh, well, an estimated ten uh, percent, which is uh, which is which is quite a lot. Um, but if you look at the risk here, Alex, um, you know, the, I, I, I've heard some passionate pleas from dairy farmers that said, you know, we don't want to move to an American type system where the quality may be lower and the animals uh, may be treated a little bit un- more unfairly. But you know, Dalhousie has just done some research, Canadian consumer research, with over nine thousand consumers. And 41% of Canadian consumers have said that they've thrown away milk and dairy products because they soured before the expiration yeah. date. And then, of course, we had we had Buttergate recently with using mm-hmm. the uh, palm oil. So th- there are some questions. It's hard for the industry right now to justify the quality when we have this significant amount or significant percentage of Canadians saying that there is a problem with the quality of the milk. So that kind of dilutes that argument. But I think the the Canadian consumers, someone who's representing the the Canadian consumers, should make a stronger fight from this. As you mentioned, Alex, it's very political. This is, uh, you know, votes are tied up in this. 
but it's very important that somebody represents consumers and not only consumers but also businesses and what will likely happen like the this happened previously is illegal milk will start to come in from the u.s at lower cost and also consumers will start to migrate to products uh, sure. cheese products from uh, from europe and maybe australia and new zealand so it'll actually be detrimental this whole supply management system in the long term if, if you take all of the components of it together it's detrimental for trade agreements that Canada has mm -hmm. with many parties, and it's also detrimental for Canadian consumers. Boy, oh boy. What a time we are in, and uh, who knows what it's going to look like in the next coming months. John, appreciate you uh, breaking down what is almost impossible for many to break down, so I'm very grateful that you were able to do it. Thanks for having me, Alex. That is John Keogh, who uh, has become quite regular on this show because he knows all you need to know about supply chain issues, which now are an issue, and of course, breaking down these kinds of issues of how food gets to your table and how the pricing is done. Thank you for listening. Of course, you can join us live Monday through Friday, starting 6.30 sharp. I'm Alex Pearson on Point, and this is Global News Radio.